1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, December 9th, just after market close here in New York City at 4 p.m. There is no intro section today, and I'm joined by Ed Harrison. Thank you for joining me, Ed. Good to talk to you, Max. All right. So we've done this on Wednesday now for a few weeks in a row, and previously we were focused on the real economy. Today we're going to be focused on markets. Ah, uh, we we ended in the red. I think in in just about every major index, at least here in the United States, um, with with the carnage spread evenly across the board, with a few exceptions. Um, but really, it hasn't been that way uh, in in recent past. So I think it helps to start out by putting today's red day in context of what we've seen over the past few weeks.
2: Definitely, and yeah, let me tell you how I'm thinking about it. Uh, I want to have a conversation about equities. Want to talk about bonds. Uh, then I want to talk about other markets like gold, as an example. Maybe we can get to the US dollar. And then once we do all of that, wrap it up, and then come see if we have any conclusions. Maybe we can talk to individual uh, positions, individual events like DoorDash, that IPO. We can talk about, I saw JP Morgan had a negative commentary in Tesla. And then once we've gone through those individual issues, then we can see, OK, so uh, what does that all say to us? Because ultimately, the real economy Uh, It seems that the market is looking through the real economy. That's sort of the take that I'm going to have as we, uh, in terms of the transition from talking about the real economy to the markets. But now, in terms of the markets, just yesterday the Nasdaq was at an all-time high. I'm looking at the numbers, and the Nasdaq closed down just under two percent today. uh, You were telling me before we got on, it seemed a little bit like it was a gloomy, uh, gloomy day. But that's perhaps because it was actually gloomy in New York. But we were at a record high just recently, so really, I looked at the s and p five hundred over the last twelve months. It was very interesting to see the chart uh The chart shows basically a straight line up i mean basically, if you looked at the chart uh from December to about uh march late February, it was up like this, then it went down, and then it resumed you know at a lower level the same trajectory that it had before to the point where now. Uh, we are well above the levels that we were a year ago. And this is in an economy that's clearly lower in terms of its baseline because of the pandemic than it was in February. So it's a very bullish environment uh, from a market perspective.
1: And that, thats perhaps why the uh, what you're talking about, that disconnect with the real economy, is perhaps why today's day, even in the context of what has been a pretty bullish action, I—I I was looking at the three-month chart. I was trying to look at today in in. In relation to what we've seen over the past three months, because we have seen some, some more dramatic pullbacks um, to really come to mind in the last three months. And, and if you were to, to pull up today on that, it, it really, you, you can't even see it. Um, but it's that disconnect from the real economy that makes today sort of feel a little bit more important, uh, as maybe it could be the turning point. Everybody is cautious about what could be the turning point and looking for not only the price action to confirm that, but some of the other signals. Um, the VIX got down to almost broke broke the 20 level, um, but with the sort of negative action, we saw really more at the end of the day, uh, it moved back up to 22. Um, that, that's really low compared to where we've been uh, at least in the second half of this year. But if you go back to where we were in January of 2020, we were down below uh, 20, pretty Pretty almost exclusively down below twenty, with with high volatility uh, being associated with what we're now calling low volatility. Um, so, what are you thinking about in terms of, of volatility in the market and what we're seeing from from VIX?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm looking at a VIX chart uh, at uh, from different time frames. As you say that, I would say that w- there was a there was a level where we were by and large from say 2015 onward which and the trend was in the low teens uh we're talking as low as uh 9.5 in 2017 you know so basically we're in that 11 to 15 uh ratio uh there were times where we spiked up you know for instance you remember when we had uh the market throw up because uh uh, Powell, at the end of 2018, raised rates for a, a fourth time, and they cried uncle. We got up to 25 then. But by and large, we were below 20 that entire time in the low in the low teens and also even below in the tweens. So when you then look at it from a different time frame, uh, starting from a year ago, we, we vaulted up from that level uh, immediately up to well above 70, 80 on the VIX. And since that time, on I would say three, maybe four separate occasions, we've come down towards that twenty level that you're talking about. That uh, we went down there to about twenty five in uh, in June before we had the June uh, spike. Then uh, you know, in, in COVID cases, we went down to the same level. Maybe it was more like twenty one, twenty two in August before we had another spike. Um, we had another spike uh, right around the election, and then now we're coming off of that and moving down. So it it seems like that 20 level that you're talking about is a level that we just can't get below. It's sort of, if you look at the trend where we are now, which is about 22, and you just draw a line straight across all the way back through the end of the year, uh, to the beginning of the year, You know, it's sort of like a resistance point. We're we're above that twenty, so I don't think we're we're imminently going to hit to that level that we were before. There's no uh, trend to break below that level. It seems that we're at a a a higher level of volatility in the market for some time to come, perhaps until we get a definitive outcome with the pandemic and the vaccine.
1: Yeah, and, and it is it is really a measure of expectations because it's implied volatility. It's not the realized volatility in the market that the VIX is tracking. And and some volatility traders and specifically the guys who are monetizing these spikes in volatility, long volatility traders, were bemoaning um it has been a tough market for them recently, and one one volatility trader who's been on Real Vision on the plus tier, Chris Seidel, was was saying, you know, I I wish we could get back to that cheap volatility like we had before before we saw the vault up in March, and another volatility trader said, be careful what you wish for, because it is very reflexive. And when you get down to those low levels, you tend to stay at those low levels. So although the options are cheap, uh, there's a good reason that they're cheap. And so it's a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't world for for volatility traders right now where um, it it seems like the the elevated levels of volatility would be good for them, but it makes it more expensive. And so but if they get that cheap volatility that they're looking for, chances are there's a good reason it's cheap. Uh, So it, it has been a tough go for them. Um, and I find that really interesting that that we're keeping at that level, and and it it, it could be related to that uncertainty that you're talking about, but I, I won't uh, hazard a guess as to why we're here. And, and I would caution anybody trying to do technical analysis on the VIX. Uh, it's a good way to get yourself uh, in trouble, especially if you, if you go posting that on Twitter. Um, but but the DoorDash IPO was definitely the story of the day. Uh, I think it, it came out, uh, the offering was at 102. Uh, it's up 77% on the day, uh, around 180 is where we are. And, and the company had their, their best quarter really ever this last quarter, but still, um, I, I think, lost money this year. Uh, can you talk to me about what this IPO says, one, in its timing and the decision by management, and two, what, what we saw in the appetite for a, a money losing delivery, food delivery, App like DoorDash.
2: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this, and you know, just with with the backdrop being that we're going to go through a number of different things that are happening that happen in the markets today in isolation, and then at the end try to see if we can put them all together. Uh, So I'm not going to necessarily relate this to anything else that we're going to be talking about afterwards. But the reason I'm excited about it is that it it just seems to be emblematic of where we are right now. I mean, DoorDash is the quintessential stay-at-home company uh but you you use DoorDash in a, in a massive way now actually i just used it for the first time probably a, a month or two ago because you're you're at home and DoorDash soared to an ipo level of 60 billion dollars a market cap at 60 it was almost up 100% at some point during the day uh one other tidbit that i would say about DoorDash is is we have these direct listings that we've seen recently this is a perfect case of why you get a direct listing because Clearly, whoever was pricing this IPO left a lot of money on the table for uh, the, uh, the the company. Just think, the company wanted to raise money, but they raised so much less money than they could have had they actually done the IPO at the levels that it eventually went to. If it only had popped like 15 or 20%, that would have been much more money in the coffers of DoorDash. But to me, DoorDash is a company that understands get while the getting's good. We are a- a stay-at-home company that's benefiting from the pandemic. We haven't made any money except very recently. Let's IPO now while we can. Well done, DoorDash. Is what I have to say.
1: Yeah. the The question is, are they? I'm going to steal from Dan McMurtry, who was talking about these uh, stay-at-home stocks. Are they inflectors or non-inflectors? Is this a a pull forward of demand that they're that's really just going to disappear when we go back to normal, or is this are we really going to change our behavior? Is delivery of food really going to maintain at these levels? And anecdotally, I can tell you that there are a couple of meals, which I probably would have gone out to dinner for, uh, that I that I myself ordered on DoorDash. And I know that I will not be having those, those sorts of date nights, stay-at-home date nights, uh, when we eventually are allowed to go back to restaurants. So I'm a little skeptical that this that this growth and even the company themselves if, if you read their um, their outlook, they're saying that this growth that they have seen is not sustainable growth, and you will see declines in the growth rates moving forward. But uh, the market seemed to look through that in what we've been talking about, in looking through the real economy and even the the micro real economy that we're talking about with DoorDash. It's been looked through. There's appetite. uh risk taking appetite is probably the nicest way to put it. Uh, oh yeah,
2: definitely. And by the way, uh, again, sixty billion dollar market cap. Uh, is that a? I mean, given you have Uber E, where was it the secret sauce? Where's the moat around this this enterprise for DoorDash? Is it just a dime a dozen, or does it have some secret sauce that makes it uh, enviable to the degree of 60 billion dollars in market cap? I think that, as you say, this is a, a this is a, a, a you know this is a a frothy IPO. And it, to me, it, it speaks to uh, the greater fool sort of theory. It'll be interesting to see what Airbnb does tomorrow because they, again, you know, they understand that it's on the opposite side of things. They're not a stay-at-home company. You know, hey, this market is good not just for stay-at-home companies, but actually companies that have been beaten down by uh, the whole stay-at-home phenomenon. Now we're exiting stay-at-home. Uh, let's IPO as well.
1: Yes. Yes. So there, there's really two ways that you can you can take advantage of this. Um, I mean, whether not really two ways. They're doing it the exact same way. Uh, but there's two different types of companies that are taking advantage of this. But either way, they're taking advantage of one simple fact: is that the market is is really there for. It's benefiting companies themselves, and, and more than anybody else. I think investors look at this market and and are struggling to find the best opportunities. Obviously, there is potential for uh, the rotation trade, which has been talked about. They're they're assuming that that does play out. There is some opportunity there, as there have been some serious laggards. But uh, the question remains, you know, how much opportunity is there? And and another company that, that I know we wanted to talk about was Tesla.
2: Which, yeah, uh, can I tell you? What, can I read something for you? Because I think yeah. this is really uh, hilarious. So there, it was an article from Bloomberg. Uh, the uh, th- this is an analyst uh, over at Bloomberg, uh, Ryan Brinkman, who uh, wrote a negative note on Tesla, even though actually I think he raised his price target, um, uh, which you can get into in a second. But uh, Tesla shares they've been uh, they've risen 800 percent in the last two years. Analysts have raised their price targets on average about a 450 percent. And they've simultaneously lowered their earnings estimates for the company for the years 2020 through 2024. Uh, This is, uh, and here's a quote from Bloomberg, they say about Brinkman, they say the data is, quote, strongly suggestive of the idea that something apart from the fundamental speculative fervor is driving the shares higher. That's That's what he says. Up eight hundred percent, so and 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 uh, you know earnings estimates down. Something apart from fundamentals is driving the stock.
1: Yes, and people who have have followed his recommendations, uh, I believe they quoted, have lost over something like negative eight hundred and fifty percent. Yeah, uh, those that, who That was, followed, that was right. the money quote. There is, is that yes? If you had followed his recommendation this
2: year. Uh, They say very dryly, according to Bloomberg data, investors who followed Brinkman's recommendation received a negative 867% return in the past year.
1: Yeah, and the thing, though, to me that was very interesting, which which I think relates back to what we were talking about and people taking advantage of this market, is that today, Tesla also offered, uh, raised money themselves via a secondary offering of shares, and they were able to raise $5 billion dollars. Um, and only dilute one percent. We talk all the time about companies buying back shares at the worst time and never raising money uh, at the best time via equity offerings. And and this we must I have to admit that Tesla did. Did the right thing, and in if you're talking about from the perspective of the you know corporate executives who are in charge of of managing Tesla's balance sheet, I mean to be able to raise five billion dollars in cash and only dilute, I mean to dilute less than one percent is pretty pretty spectacular, Um, and and is an example of how this market is really benefiting the executives who are shepherding these companies a lot more than it is the investors. I mean the investors didn't get hurt that bad by a one percent dilution, so good on Tesla there for for not. Not hurting their shareholders that bad. Yeah, but, good on Tesla. Yeah, but but the the main takeaway for me is if you look at the Airbnb IPO, which is a company which has really been hurt by um, hurt by the the pandemic, saying this is the time. A company like Grubhub, which is saying uh, DoorDash. For, Grubhub, DoorDash, which has really benefited from this market, saying now is the time. And then you have a company like Tesla, who has benefited from this market for for. Non-economic reasons, whatever they may be, saying now is the time. Uh, what does that say about where we are in the market? Um, but you know,
2: well, you you were on the call. Uh, we had a pre-interview call with uh, Robert Cohen of DoubleLine, who I'm going to talk to on Friday. And I think he, the term that he uses, borrowers' market, because he's a, a bonds guy. And uh, you were telling me, yeah, I think that the analogy is a. Uh, a seller's market, a, a, a insider's market, a corporate executive's market. Yes, that's the market that we're in right now. It's, it's, it's great for uh, the insiders, for the companies that are selling shares, that are sh- selling uh, debt. But it, unless you believe in the greater fool theory, uh, you might uh, be caught out. The, the biggest uh, twist to all of this, I think, is uh, what Bloomberg said about Brinkman. You know, Do you want to get in front of that freight train? Do you want to, to go short and get a negative 867% return from uh, taking the advice of Brinkman? Or is the answer to uh, position yourself accordingly, avoid uh, the bubble altogether? It's very difficult for those who
1: have to track the market and who have to get uh, returns. Yeah, and it goes back. I mean, you and I are not the first people on Real Vision to talk about the incentive structure for for money managers, and that it's it's quarter by quarter, and you have to keep up. And that certainly is, is part of what is is driving the market. And and those people like Brinkman who have who have gone against the gone against the tide, they have negative 867 percent returns to show for it. And you know. I am not I am not wishing negative things for Brickman in, in his career, but certainly that's not a, a a a check in the positive column um when your clients are are going and looking at, at at your research. And so, you know, that that's that's what people are trying to avoid. They're trying to avoid that very thing. And and that is certainly what is is playing into People buying five billion dollars worth of Tesla shares uh, when when their analysts out there are saying it's worth ninety dollars, and I believe that was a price raise from eighty dollars. Is
2: you know right? Like, oh yeah, yeah, right. Even yeah. though they're they're selling at you know multiples of that right now, so you, you'd have to have the company go down like 75, 80 percent or more uh, in order to get to that price target. Let me t- let me uh, just mention one or two other things that that aren't in your radar that came up after I, I spoke to you on the phone earlier today. Uh, AT&T, this is a company that I think that uh, Robert Cohen's going to talk to me about on Friday. Uh, he was talking about TV. Yes, they are doing a DirecTV uh, deal. They're trying to get it off their balance sheet, even even though they want to you know, maintain control. Apparently, Apollo uh, Global Management, mm. uh, long seen as a front runner, it put it in a bid just below $15 billion, including debt. That's a, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, Michael Klein's blank check company, you know, that's a SPAC, is among the bidders. So, I mean, uh, going back to what Robert Cohen was saying, it is a uh, a debtor's market, you know, a borrower's market. ATT, they're a triple B that uh, got in over their skis in terms of uh, you know buying up companies, levering up, and now they're deleveraging, and they're doing it at the right time. They're getting the huge money, including from uh, top of the market type of vehicles, SPACs that are in these bidding processes. So, uh, you know, kudos to AT and T for understanding this is the time you need to get the money, get while the getting's good. Kudos to DoorDash. Kudos to Tesla, and same thing for at and all very good. One last thing uh, on your radar, Max, is um, that we didn't talk about. I don't know what the, uh, the story is on this, but apparently, the Supreme Court issued a, um, a ruling on Fannie and Freddie. and We talk a lot about Fannie and Freddie, you know, with Gabby Hefesa in particular. So something potentially for us to talk about in future episodes.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's I mean the the regulatory aspect of it is what's really interesting is because it it is uncorrelated to a lot of the other stuff that's going on. Uh it's it's a I I own the preferreds myself in my portfolio and so, you know, I saw a lot of red today and that was the only thing that was green. And so it is that nice uncorrelated aspect to it, which is why I think looking at those those little ideas outside of the market or in a market like this, I believe uh Robert Cohen to to steal his words said it's it's not a big beta market. It's a it's an alpha market. It's a it's a stock pickers market. A credit, you know, you you have to go in and do the analysis on these individual credits to go and find the ones where you're really finding where, where you really think there is value. And and I think that the the Fannie and and Freddie trade is a perfect example of that. Something that that's maybe not as correlated, um, and and that there is some some solid fundamentals behind. Um, but yes, I, I I'm looking forward to to following up on that and hopefully uh it. for me, at least, it it goes the way I think it will. Um, But this gives us a good, you know we talked about credit a little bit, this gives us a a segue into the bond market. I know you are keenly focused on the steepening of the yield curve. Uh, We saw yields actually rise again today, at least on the long end of the curve, the 10-year and the 30-year, in spite of this sell-off. Earlier this year, you would have maybe expected bonds to rally today, but not so much. So what is it that you think the yield curve is signaling to us?
2: So uh, I think uh, there are two things that I'm thinking about with regard to the yield curve, uh, and, and also in, with regard to Treasuries in particular. So if you look at the 10-year, the 210 spread, mm-hmm. it's interesting because the 210 spread was lowering down to about March, and then it spiked up even before the Fed intervened. You know, in early March, it went way up to you know 60 basis points. It went down again to about 40, and since then it's been on a trajectory up. So it's up and to the right, up to about 78, 79 basis points now. Usually, what that's a sign of is uh, recovery. What it's saying is, is, is that in the future, at some point in time, the Fed's going to raise interest rates or the economies are going to be so good they can think about raising rates. Uh, that's always a good thing when, when they curb. Uh, you know, flattens or inverts and then steepens dramatically, that's a, a, a bullish sign. And so it would go along with what we were talking about in equities. So equities and debt are pretty much uh, sending the same signal from that perspective with regard to the steepening yield curve on the one hand, and then equities going up on the other hand. The interesting bit, though, is even though the yield curve is steepening, and that's positive, uh, it is interesting how, uh, on a day like today, where the NASDAQ sold off by 2%, the yield curve continued to steepen. So, uh, I find that a little bit worrisome from the concept, uh, from the prospect of being able to see markets go down, that is, equity markets, and then being able to mitigate that uh, downside through some appreciation in your bond portfolio. Because supposedly they're going to be going in opposite directions, but today, uh you you saw a sell off in the nasdaq uh, to the order of 2% and yet yields were up you know 3 or 4 basis points uh amount i think that bears watching uh if that relationship's breaking down what what's going on what's being said there
0: you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and ads
1: Yeah, I, I personally don't have uh, any insight to add as to whether that relationship is breaking down on a, on a longer term. Uh, it certainly didn't hold today, and it's not something new. A lot of people have been talking about that even as far back as as your interview with Ben Inker, uh, talking about you know the death of the 60/40 portfolio and, and this correlation breaking down. Certainly, and that correlation breaking down over a longer time period would be a signal that perhaps the 60-40 portfolio is not long lived for this world. Um, But one of the assets that I think is related both to the steepening of the yield curve and potentially the death of the 60-40 portfolio is gold. It has been touted as potentially something that could move in to replace some of that 40, assuming that percentage goes down, and it is highly linked to real yields. Uh, obviously, inflation, there's a lot of people talking about that it might pick up, but as of right now, still extremely low, and the yield curve, or yields are moving up. So that means the negative real yields that we have seen are, uh, I, I'm not sure if they are, they're, they're definitely not positive yet, but they're less negative. They're moving towards that positive area. And uh, as as we've seen in the past few weeks, gold is moving down alongside of that. So what is it, uh, that correlation between gold and and real yields? Uh, that you think is most important to watch?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, if, if I could extend the narrative of, uh, you know, bond markets saying one thing and equity markets saying the same thing, maybe what we're seeing in uh, precious metals is a continuation of the same thing. That is, as people are looking through the real economic data uh, onto the other side, the vaccine side of things, and they're bidding up equities. They're bidding up the yields on bonds, and as a result, precious metals are less attractive. That that would seem to be what uh, what the play is. That's why gold has not done as well. That's why silver hasn't done as well recently. Perhaps they're all speaking the same language. You know, when yields are being bid up uh, somewhat, gold is less attractive. Uh, So so far. All of that meshes together into one meta narrative, if you will. Uh, the, the narrative being that yes, we're having very difficult times now. It's going to be a long, cold winter. But on the other side of that, you know, it's uh, a, a pot at the end of the rainbow.
1: Yes, <laughs> a yeah, pot well, of I- gold. Oh. Uh huh. Yeah, a, a lot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, but we are down below 1850, at least in the middle of the week. I, I'm not too. I, I like weekly closes. A lot of people like weekly closes, so we're we're not below that 1850 level yet officially, by by my count, as we haven't seen a weekly close down below there. But at least right now, I think we're down at like in the 1830s uh, for gold. So that's something I'm watching. I know a lot of Real Vision uh, viewers are certainly watching that as well. Uh, gold obviously always talked about in relation to a weak dollar and as a play on the you know debasement of the U.S. dollar. That is the one asset that isn't stepping in line with this narrative. You talked about the dollar smile with Kevin Muir and how the dollar tends to rally in two specific environments and tends to fall in in one sort of environment in the middle of that smile. Um, but it's not really matching up with with that narrative. So the dollar is down actually on on the on the day, I believe the dollar is up. But for the most part in in the past few months, if you look at like a three month chart of the dollar it's it's been pretty down and to the right there. So what is it that you think the dollar is missing or or perhaps uh, is is the signal that it's sending us as it's not stepping in line with the other indicators?
2: Yeah, I don't know what signal it's sending, but this is certainly something I want to talk to Tommy Thornton about, because the last time that I spoke to him on Real Vision, he was talking about uh, he looks uh, for a stronger dollar. Uh, I think the dollar was trading with a 93 handle at the time. Now, it's trading at 91. Earlier today, it was trading at, with a 90 handle. Uh, so the the dollar's broken down. The euro was trading at 121 something earlier. It's now trading at 180, 120.81. Uh, so, you know, it's broken out of a range. The top of that range was 119. So, to me, uh, going back to what you were talking about with regard to the dollar smile, what it seems to be suggesting is the opposite of exactly the meta narrative that I was talking about before, uh, which is that. Uh, the, all, all's good, you know, with the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Instead, what it seems to be saying is, okay, uh, dollar strong when uh, the shit hits the fan. Uh, it's also strong when the U.S. economy is doing well, because you know, uh, relatively speaking, yield should be going up. Uh, you know, you're attracting money into the economy. People want uh, dollars. The dollar goes up. But when the when the economy's weak. Uh, that's when uh, the dollar doesn't do as well. So, in fact, the dollar is sending the opposite signal with the with its falling that these other markets are se- are sending. So, if there were a meta narrative that uh, you could spin with regard to all the other asset classes that we just mentioned, that is not being uh, reflected in the price of uh, the dollar. And let me just say that the same meta narrative that I've been spinning here. Is also with copper. Copper has had been going up. It's also with regard to oil. Oil had been going up. So you know, commodities are doing well, um, and uh, copper in particular. So you know, I think that the jury's out in terms of if there really is a meta narrative. Now that we're sort of near the end of uh, what we're going to be talking about, I feel as if. It, it might sound good to say the meta narrative is looking through. We're looking on the other side of the the pandemic, but the dollar it sort of throws a a, a spanner in
1: in that uh, in the works there. Okay, so will you be watching the action of the dollar as as potentially the last thing to step in line? And if so, are you, you're, you're counting on a rally from the dollar? Uh, well, do
2: you-, you know, I, I don't know if I, I would answer that question. More, I would say, you know, because I don't want to. I don't have a view. I want to see what Tommy Thornton has to say because he's on the other side of this. He's he was saying to me, uh, uh, if he's looking, get ready for this, Tommy. uh, The dollar is going to rally, but
1: the opposite has happened over the last uh, couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Tommy and I are on the opposite side of the trade there. Uh, So we, I, I'm interested to see what he says as well because I'm, I'm always looking for a good. Challenged my own view. Um, Well, Ed, thank you so much. We we have really covered it all uh, from equities to commodities to bonds to credit. So it was a lot of fun getting to talk markets. A little less real economy today. Uh, Is there anything anything we missed before I let you go? Yeah, you know, I I was.
2: uh, What was I thinking about? Is uh, the the DXY? You know, so the dollar index. Let me uh, let me take a look at that really quick. um, In terms of uh, thinking about DXY. If you look at a chart of DXY, uh, since we were talking about the dollar last, uh, take a one-year chart as an example. Basically, uh, it's trended down ever since uh, the reopen, not the reopening, but ever since the Fed intervention. Uh, right before the Fed intervention, the dollar uh, went way up, and since then, it's been going down. It's headed in only one direction, and and that's down, and there's nothing that says that it's going in any other way. So to me, I'd like to understand why that's the case and why we should think that it's going to turn in the opposite direction, except in the case of a liquidity panic. Uh, so I
1: think that's the big story for me in terms of the dollar. Yeah, and then there are also those catalysts in terms of you know big stimulus packages potentially coming through. Uh- as of right now, it looks like a, a blue wave is unlikely, but there is still that runoff uh, in the in the Senate in Georgia, which could which could give the Democrats control of all three branches or I mean, all, both houses and the executive branch. Uh, nobody has control of the of the Supreme Court. Um, but you know th- there are more catalysts for f- further dollar weakness down there. and I don't see too many catalysts besides that liquidity event that you're talking about for for a dollar spike. besides, other than the fact that this decline has been rapid and it has been uh, pronounced, and that you know, unsustainable, unsustainable moves, uh, you know, are called unsustainable moves for a reason, and they tend to have pullbacks. So other than just like a natural exhale, which, which is nice, it's a it's a good place to get back in the trade. I I think that what we've seen over the past, I think I looked at it basically bottomed out in, in December, and we've gone. Basically sideways with a little upward action, the dollar over the last uh, week or so. Uh, you know, that that isn't a bad thing if you are looking for for the dollar to continue lower. That that's natural. It happens when you have these big, rapid moves like we're seeing. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I don't see anything stopping it going down at this point, other than that sort of liquidity event.
2: Excellent. Yeah. So that was my last point there, Max. Uh, really appreciate talking to you. Uh,
1: maybe we'll bring it back to the real economy for you next time. Let's uh, let's take a look and see. Uh, you know me. I'm a I'm a junkie. I'm a markets junkie. I don't need to talk about PMIs or anything like that. Let, <laughs> let's talk price.
2: Excellent. You're a
0: podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.